Those are the sounds and voices from deep in the heart of one of the most isolated rainforests on the face of the earth. A place so rare and remote, it exists outside the experiences of all but a few resilient villagers and the hardiest of researchers. A lush, intensely green tropical world on the western edge of the vast Congo Basin, and one of the last strongholds of a rich biodiversity that includes gorillas, chimps, forest elephants, and a breathtaking range of flora and fauna. On this episode of Talking Apes, we're exploring new efforts to draw the world's attention to this critically important rainforest. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis. Welcome to Talking Apes. My guest today is conservation scientist, Dr. Nikki Tagg, head of conservation for the Born Free Foundation. Nikki is one of those rare researchers who has ventured into this spectacular rainforest in hopes of understanding the causes of biodiversity loss and the mechanisms of coexistence between people and nature, all in an effort to help us conserve this unparalleled biodiversity both inside and beyond the jaw. Her work explores the effects of human activities like hunting and logging on great ape abundance, specifically gorillas and chimpanzees. This is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you and from the nonprofit Globio. Hi, Nikki, and welcome to Talking Apes. Hi, thank you for having me. You have a very long history as a conservation scientist, both in the field and, and others. So let's let's begin with that transition from being a scientist to what you're doing at Born Free, which is really more like a conservation activist. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think I, I do come from an academic background. I don't think I followed the usual sort of career path of a conservationist, possibly at the time. That there wasn't the an obvious career path for a conservationist, but I feel that I, I did take a, a rather convoluted way in. Um, but from leaving university, I sort of worked in research, so great ape conservation science uh, for many years, uh, first as a volunteer and then in, in sort of paid positions. Um, and so my career did sort of start out um, with the sort of fundamental research. Well, a lot of it was applied sort of conservation science, but focusing on the research. Um, so I worked for, for for many years in in Cameroon on a great ape conservation science program where we were uh, facilitating a research program in the forest. So we were carrying out our own research, but also, you know, recruiting master's students and welcoming PhD students and, and other researchers to, to come and, and conduct their research in, in the forest in Cameroon. Um, and then, yes, I have since moved to, to Born Free. It sort of seemed like a natural progression for me. I mean, I think for anyone who researches, you know, conducts research on animals that are endangered, you know, in today's world, it's it's a natural next step that, you know, we, we want to work on in, in conserving them. Um, 
you know, you, you see the threats and you see the decline and, and the problems um, and you, you absolutely want to do as much as you can in, in sort of conservation um, as well. Um, but but on the other hand, I don't really see that um, that I've, I've moved significantly. I don't, I don't really see a, a huge distinction between what I was doing before and what I'm doing now. Um, research is still a very big part of what I do. Um, so when I'm sort of you know, carrying out conservation actions in the field, which might be, for example, trialing a, um, a a tool which might try to reduce conflict between animals and people. So it might be, for example, flashing lights that um, will deter chimpanzees from entering a, a farmer's field and eating all their crops. Then, you know, there's a lot that you have to measure there. So you, you first of all have to check that the tool is working, uh, is functioning. So is it, is it flashing lights when it should be and, and, you know, turning off when it, when it should be? So you, you have to, you know, you have to sort of measure all of that. And then, and then you want to know whether the tool is effective in, in sort of achieving the outcomes that you want it to achieve. So is it keeping the chimpanzees away? And then the next step would be, is that helping local people to um, live peacefully with chimpanzees? And is it reducing sort of persecution of chimpanzees? So you have to measure so much um, when you're carrying out conservation work, that a big part of it really uh, still is is research, and I do consider myself still a sort of research scientist. Um, I, I'm not not sure I would consider myself an activist. I suppose um, you know I'm I'm, a, I'm an informed citizen. I, I sort of work in wildlife conservation, so maybe I'm more aware of of the issues and and you know more keen to find solutions. I, I'd like to think of myself as you know an agent of change rather than a rebel in that sense. But I suppose it, it depends on your definition of, of an activist. Let's talk about Born Free Foundation. Um, I think most people's impression about Born Free, the Born Free Foundation is it is an activist organization. I don't, I'm not sure that they think about the science that's going on there. And you're the second person that I've, I've spoken to who talked about the amount of science that is happening with the Born Free Foundation. So maybe you could just enlighten me and the rest of the world about the Born Free Foundation. Well, the Born Free Foundation has several arms, I suppose. And I think um, possibly, um, you know, the, the most well-known arm of its work is its campaigning against keeping animals in captivity and exploiting, you know, wild, wild animals in any way. Um, which is a big part of its work, absolutely. So, you know, it's it's quite right that it has that reputation, but it also has other arms where we we have um, five, uh, we, we call it sort of our tier one programs, our flagship work, which is, you know, large conservation programs that are designed and, and run and managed, you know, in-house. Um, and so, of course, there's, there's, as I've explained, a huge element of research in those. We also have an arm um, that's looking specifically at sort of environmental education. And of course, you know, that requires you know, similar sort of levels of monitoring and evaluation to, to see that it's effective. And we have another arm that's all about policy, you know, so that there's a lot more um, in the organization, I guess, than, than sort of the, the forward facing um, part of it that, and, and also the sort of historical understanding of, of the organization. And, and I think it's, it's evolving. I mean, our conservation work is evolving very much, you know, more towards the work that we're conducting ourselves, um, away from, um, sort of, you know, the foundation style where we're supporting third parties to do the conservation work. Why is that? Why, why do you, why do you think that it's evolving t towards you doing the research? 
Was it just not getting accomplished the way that the foundation had hoped, or is it just more cost-effective, or what would be the reason? Um, I think it's possibly just the way that the the teams within you know the organization have evolved and and you know we we have built up some excellent teams you know overseas that are able to to do this work so we're able to invest a lot more um, of our resources you know directly into our own flagship work rather than um, to, to third parties I think it's it's just the you know the the interest of of those involved and in the way that the organization has has changed over the years. One of those areas that you're working is called the jaw, um, and and I one of the reasons I was so excited about having you on is to talk about the jaw. It's it's an area of the world that is biologically maybe one of the richest on the planet, and yet most people have never heard of it. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about it, where it is, what it is, why it's so significant, and why we should all be aware of it. Yeah, sure. So, yes, Born Free Foundation has started working in in the Jar Biosphere Reserve in the southeast of Cameroon. Uh, we we launched our program there in April of this year. Um, the Jar is um, it's um, a sort of it has three levels of protection. So, the Jar Biosphere Reserve is the larger. Um, the area. It's a two million hectare forested area in the southeast of Cameroon. That's about twenty thousand kilometers squared, um, and that comprises the core area, protected area, as well as forestry management units and um, community forests. And that biosphere reserve is a UNESCO biosphere reserve. And then within that, the core area that I mentioned is known as the Jar Faunal Reserve. That's a 526,000 hectare protected area. So that's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's also a nationally protected area. So it's a protected area in Cameroon. So it sort of has this triple protection um, layer. It's it's really really important um, in terms of um, where it is and what's living in it. So the, the the landscape stretches out to the east into an area that's known as the Tridom. So that stands for the Trinational Jar Odzala Minkebe Transborder Forest. So it's basically um, an area of forest which uh, spans three. Uh, countries in Central Africa. So that's Cameroon, Gabon, and the Republic of Congo. And this transborder forest is about 10% of the, the Congo Basin in itself. And it's you know, something like 97% forest. So it's a very, very important area. And the jar is sort of you know, far over on the, the western edge of that. So you know, the, the connectivity um, of you know, ensuring that the, the jar uh, you know, connects into that forest, that forested tract is really, really important for the wildlife living in, living in the forest. Um, it's also recognised as an important priority landscape for great apes in particular. Um, central chimpanzees and western lowland gorillas um, live there together. Um, and of course, it's also you know, critically important if you consider that it's the Congo Basin, which is the second largest forest tract on the planet. So after the Amazon Basin, it's it's the biggest you know, expanse, of, expanse of forest on the planet. And of course, you know, in Today's world, where we are facing, you know, the, the climate crisis, this is it's absolutely crucial to be preserving these large forested areas. I mean, uh, you know, forest forests basically sequester a huge amount of carbon. They help regulate, you know, water cycles around the planet. So they, you know, help ensure that it rains in other parts of Africa, for example. You know, weather patterns. Uh, there's so much that's that's of importance there globally. That it's absolutely crucial uh, that we protect these forests, and then um, something that's not 
so well known, I, I, I think, in, in the, cli- uh, the climate fight is the role of wildlife in that. So it's not just about protecting the forest, but it's absolutely crucial that we protect and preserve the wildlife and you know the full extent of the, the, the composition of species, wildlife species that live in the forest. Um, because without those, you know, the, the forest won't stay a forest for very long. Uh, wildlife plays a, you know, a, a critical functional role within the ecosystem in which it lives. So we, we, we must make sure that we, we protect those as well. Yeah, I actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, one, as I was doing some research um, before we were going to chat, I was reading a couple of papers and one of them was from 2004 and another from 2011, I believe. Um, the latter one, David Wilkie was the primary author on it. And they were talking about this area of of the jaw in the Western Congo Basin. And the thing that struck me was in the 2004 paper, the 2011 paper, and what we're hearing today, I'm just going to read um, a, a quick bit from it. It just, hunting is an insidious but significant driver in tropical forest defaunation, risking cascading changes to forest plant and animal composition. And that was from a paper entitled Empty Forests Revisited. There seems to be, over the last couple of decades, this continued fear about losing wildlife in these forests and what that will do to the composition of these forests. And I'd like to understand that better. Maybe you could share some thoughts on that, because I don't think it's something that, that people are very aware of. They think of, you, know, you go in, you log trees and you take the trees out and the forest disappears and it turns into industrial agriculture, palm oil plantations, whatever. Um, but I, I don't, it may be, and maybe it's something that hasn't made it out of the science community um, significantly enough to the, the, the general population that the role of some of these large, uh, especially large mammals like great apes and ele- forest elephants and such play in the the health and composition of the forest. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's something we were looking at um, in, in my previous role when I was working in, in, the, in the jar before, but before I moved to Born Free, was actually looking at um, functional diversity and, and functional health of the ecosystem. So, um, you know, if we can measure, of course, over time abundances of species. So we can look at great apes and elephants and monkeys, and, and we might see abundances decline. So the number of animals, we can see that declining over the years, and that is the trend that we have seen. Um, but we can also look at. Sorry, how do we see that? How how is it that that is measured? If you if you were dealing with something, you said it was ninety seven percent forest. Like, how do we see that? Um, so the the standard way of looking at abundances of wild animals would be using transect surveys. So you would just you would design a survey over a particular area, and walk, walk transects. So they might be maybe two kilometres long, and you'd have you know five transects in that area and another five in a different area, and you would just be measuring. Uh, you would just be counting signs or direct observations of these animals. So with with monkeys, it, it's quite possibly direct observations. With great apes, it's it's usually their nests. 
the night nests that they they build to sleep in every night. We usually use those as a, as a sign of their present presence. And, and you know, with their various equations, then that you can apply to the data that you collect to to sort of extrapolate and and give a an abundance or in some cases a, a density, a likely density of of the species in the landscape. Um, yeah. So, but but also what what we were looking at, what you can look at as well, is then um, species composition. So one thing that we found over the years in Cameroon that was actually quite um, pleasing was that we didn't see any species being lost. So although we were seeing declines in numbers, declines in abundances, we didn't see any change in species composition. So we've got the same great apes, the same monkeys, the same you know antelope species, and and you know whatever. In, in the array of species that we're able to sample. Um, and what that indicates is that there's still, that the, the ecosystem is still functionally healthy um, because each animal in, in an ecosystem, like in a, in a tropical forest, plays a particular role. So it might be that, you know, a, a small herbivore is keeping vegetation in check or a carnivore is keeping those, you know, rodents in, in check or something. And, and then for the larger animals, it might be roles such as gorillas dispersing seeds. So a gorilla is a very large animal that eats a lot of fruit, um, swallows seeds, usually whole, then, you know, moves several kilometers before sort of depositing these seeds in a nice little packet of dung, you know, which is a great fertilizer. And for various reasons, gorillas are brilliant seed dispersers. Um, elephants similarly, and ele elephants also, you know, uh, garden the forest in other ways because they remove a lot of the the smaller growth and the the saplings and that gives the larger trees more space to to grow and it's the larger trees that really sequester all that carbon so it's actually been shown recently that forests with elephants in sequester a lot more carbon than forests without um, so that's just to to indicate that you know every species plays its own role in the ecosystem and there'll be some redundancies so you might find that you know some monkeys actually do a very similar thing and you know if one or two species are lost um, that's not going to affect the overall functioning of the ecosystem you know we don't want that for other reasons but um, but other species are unique in their functional role and you know gorillas are an example elephants are another example so if you start to lose then those species then you'll you'll eventually you know you'll see changes in the forest structure over time and and you know essentially the ecosystem is starting to break down um, so I, I absolutely think it's it's something I would really like to see more mainstream um you know we've all heard recently a lot you know in in the in the media in the press about nature based solutions you know we all know that for to to fight the climate crisis we need to protect forests and plant trees and uh you know we need to protect the peatlands and use peat free compost and you know look after our gardens and have more wild spaces but, and and we all sort of know that you know we're all familiar with that but i'm not sure that it's quite as commonly understood that, you know, we need to also be protecting the wildlife in all of those habitats. You know, it's it's a forest won't stay a forest without the forest living species within it. And I would really love to see that, you know, to, to really see wildlife com conservation sort of ramped up and to see that movement uh, for wildlife conservation like there is at the moment for, for climate change. A lot of organisations and corporations getting on the back of it. I think that's what we need uh, for wildlife conservation. So we don't have to rely on charitable funding uh, for forever. That's that's a really interesting point. I mean, t there's two points that you brought up. One is the tree planting. I mean, I think a lot of people have heard so much about that that they think that is the solution. We just need to plant more trees. We've where we've cut them down, and let's just plant a million more trees. And you see these campaigns by various organizations to to do that. But 
it's it's even more significant than that in keeping these forests intact, um, which you were just alluding to. How how do we get what what what's the approach? Like what is Born Free doing, for example? Like how do we make the public more aware of that? How do we make corporations more aware of that? Governments more aware of the importance of intact forests, because I think. Uh, for so long, the value of these forests has been when in board feet, how many board feet you can haul out of there and how much of it you can convert to industrial agriculture. Um, that's its value. How do we how do we shift that narrative? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that I feel is that, um, you know, we, we have a disconnect with nature, I think, in the West, you know, um, one one way I think of it is that, you know, every day we're asking of the people who uh, are living in, you know, great ape range uh, countries where we work or where there are lions and tigers. You know, every day we're asking them to adapt the way they live in order to, to coexist, you know, with wildlife. That's what we have to do for, you know, for, for a win-win for everyone in order to preserve these landscapes. We need to ask them to adapt their ways of life. Um, you know, and it's very hard to live with large animals that can, you know, eat your livelihoods or, you know, they're a threat to your life. You know, it's, it's really, really difficult to ask people to, to coexist with wildlife. You know, for us in the West, it's not quite as obvious. You know, we're not talking about th those kind of interactions with wildlife. Um, but but we're not particularly good at coexisting with nature in the West, you know, because because there's um, that sort of disconnect and we don't see the fact that, you know, every choice we make, all of our sort of consumer choices, a lot of our lifestyle choices degrade nature, you know, and they, we, we don't put nature first. And I think it's just something that there's something missing there in the communication, I think, of, of um, you know, in the West that we, we also need to coexist with nature. And I think it's just a difficult, a more difficult message for us to, to, to really swallow because it's harder to see that need. Um, I think it's one thing actually working for Born Free, as we mentioned, obviously Born Free opposes keeping animals in captivity. And another point I would make around zoos is that I don't think that they really teach children, you know, or, or people at all that the, the um, you know how to coexist. They, they, you know, because obviously education is very important, important around conservation. But going to a zoo almost has the opposite effect because you know we've got people on one side of the bars or the glass, and all the you know the nature on the other side. It kind of just increases that disconnect. Whereas actually, I think what kids need is to be immersed in nature. And okay, it might not be such exotic nature. It might be butterflies in a meadow. But, you know, they can still learn about the processes and they can learn about their place in nature and how important nature is in, in their lives. Um, you know, and I, I think that's a much more important lesson. And I think that's where, uh, you know, where we're maybe missing out in terms of communicating that importance of nature and valuing nature in our lives. It feels as though there, there's also, for too long, there's been this segmentation, uh, you know, or you know, putting putting nature in different parts of the world in different silos, and and maybe that's our media. Maybe it's it's you know even it's people like me uh, as as a cameraman and a photographer. You know, we go off to these places, photograph it, and then come back and do TV shows. And the BBC does theirs, or National Geographic does theirs, and they look like faraway exotic places, not connected to us 
only through our, you know, our screens. And maybe that's part of, I'm just throwing this out, but it's maybe that's part of the education issue is we, that connectivity needs to be more seamless to the entire planet rather, rather than, and, and as you said, um, some institutions like zoos, you know, almost um, foster that disconnect because they're on that side, we're on this side. So it's it's like another version of of a, of a television screen watching a nature show. It's over there, not over here. Yeah, no, I was going to say, and it's very unnatural, you know, in a way, isn't it, to see a wild animal, you know, in a cage? That how is that teaching about nature? And and I think you're right because I think you know a lot of the issues are the same globally. It's just that we we don't sort of see that. We don't see that you know we we do face the same issues and that you know and the conservation threats across the world affect us all and are important to us all. I'm going to take a short break in my conversation with Nikki Tag, and we'll be back in just a minute to talk about the jaw. But first, I want to check in with assistant producer Demelza. Hi, Demelza. Hiya, Jerry. How are you doing? I am great, and I am so excited to share this episode of Talking Apes with our listeners because it's about one of the places that is incredibly dear to my heart, the jaw, and also just one of the the most amazing places on the face of the earth and people just don't know about it uh it's it's incredible actually how very few people have heard of this part of the world and i'm ashamed to say that even after all my years of being interested in and working in primate conservation i only recently heard of it myself and there it is one of the biggest rainforests on earth supporting all this biodiversity so yeah um it's great to learn more about it I'm also hearing good things from our listeners and all the things that they're learning. Um, And I'd like to read a couple of the comments out. So uh, we heard this week from somebody called Batang on Twitter, and they said that they love the variety of guests we feature. And they actually did some consultancy work with PASA. um, And it was really good to hear about what goes on on the inside. So thank you for that comment. We also heard from Alexandra. Saunders and she said her favourite episode was when we interviewed Bala at Takugama Chimp Sanctuary. Thank you, Alexandra. Yeah, the the Bala interview was a fun one to do because that was one of a couple we did almost exactly a year ago um, in Sierra Leone. And I hope we can have a chance to do more, quote, live interviews out in the field uh, in, the, in the coming future. Um, I was also, if people, uh, speaking of bat hangs, uh, comments about PASA, if people are interested, we've just released in season two a couple of interviews uh, with folks at PASA, an incredible organization and well worth listening to those interviews. Yeah, that's true. Please do check them out, guys. Um, They are both on our website, talkingapes.org. And while we're on that, just want to let you know, um, as you know, we're actually on Facebook and Instagram, but we've set up a dedicated Twitter account this week for the podcast so if you'd like to find that go over to talkingapes.org and you can find a link to that also that's awesome um love to hear from everybody and i'd love to hear from nikki tag so let's get back to that conversation thanks demelza thank you see you soon and now back to our conversation with nikki tag it seems like we uh you know, we again going back to the the fact that how do, how do we connect people in Europe or America or Australia to a place like the Jaw, and it seems like this faraway exotic place. We we can't. It's difficult to even connect people in Yaoundé, the capital of Cameroon, to the Jaw. 
I mean, they, you know, they may not even know it yep. exists. Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a priority of mine at Born Free, sorry. No, no. Um, is, is, um, is communication. So, you know, and I think that's one of the benefits of working for an organization like Born Free and not, not, you know, focusing just on the research is that you do have that link to the public. So, I mean, for me, you know, one of my priorities is not not just to have an impact in our work, but also to demonstrate that impact. So, as we've talked a little bit about, that involves, you know, first measuring the impact you're having. So, that's that's the research, that's your monitoring and evaluation, but then then communicating it. So, you know, you, you can do that in, in academic circles through sort of peer-reviewed scientific papers, which are very important, you know, to have your work peer-reviewed and then to have it, you know, available for, for the conservation world. You know, others can learn from that. You can get feedback, which you can use to then improve your own programs but but also you have that communication to to a wider public that's possible when when you know when you you're you're working behind a sort of you know a very well-known brand such as born free is you then can you can communicate and there are you know there are ways i'm i'm not an expert on it but we have a whole communications team you know that that find ways to best sort of communicate the work in order to you know to to yes bring in funding for our program but also to you know to take the public on on a you know journey of understanding with us you know to, to ho- hopefully lead to behavior change um at the end of the road there was a blog that you wrote and posted on the born free website and you had attended a rally in um in, in London, I guess it was. One of the things that that you wrote in there was you, you were talking about the destruction of nature and your personal values and how it was a risk to them. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit, if we could, and, and talk about those. I'm, I'm going to quote you here. My whole life, the situation in so many ways has been rapidly getting worse and worse. This is not to say that nature conservation has has failed. I've worked my whole career in wildlife conservation and I have not failed. I've made a difference. Born Free is making a difference every day. So I I just wanted to start unpacking that a little bit, that idea, because I think from two perspectives, I guess, one as a scientist um, and then also now working for Born Free, because I feel like a lot of people feel a sense of hopelessness um, when it comes to climate change and you know, saving species and you being inside maybe have a different perspective that could help a lot of people understand where we can find hope and where it may feel like we failed a lot of times, but yet, you know, maybe it's, it's, we need to expand on those successes a little more in the public's eye, but you know, that isn't as, I guess, exciting to the media, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there, there have been, several major success stories in in conservation i mean there's you know the the obvious um stories such as mountain gorilla conservation i know you've you know you've featured um that that story on your on your podcast you know that we've managed to sort of bring back from the brink essentially and it's doing very very well you know there are numerous other sort of less famous examples i guess you know um if you think of perhaps countries that sign up to banning wildlife trafficking, you know, it's it's a big major step, you know, or increases in, say, populations of lions across Kenya, um, or even, um, you know, red kites returning to the southeast of the UK, you know, whatever it might be, there are many, you know, there are many examples of, of true success stories in conservation. Um, I suppose main, mostly, though, they're, they're smaller, more localized success stories, I guess. You know, it's more about winning smaller battles. Um, and there's, there's lots of those. I mean, it's, you know, it's 
happening all the time in conservation. You know, your, your ultimate aim might be to save a species, but, you know, you have to break that down into a locality or a population, or you have to take it step by step, you know, depending on your, your resources and your expertise. And, you know, we, we do what we can as we go along. And, you know, there are, there are successes within that. So, you know, a, a particular conservation effort in a particular area might improve empower a rural community to you know really steward their own natural resources and and the the ngo can step out and you know that that model is there and it's working or you might have a, a sort of a conflict mitigation tool like i mentioned the sort of flashing lights idea you know we might find that that works really well in a particular locality um, and it, it means that people you know can live in harmony with with dangerous wildlife you know or, or you might find a protected area that's functioning really well and you know wildlife are abounding within it and you know, these are all successes. Um, but I, I think you also need to bear in mind the sort of counterfactual argument. So, you know, even in the situation where conservation efforts seem so grueling and seem so, you know, difficult to, to, to gain traction, you know, and we're seeing wildlife declines and, you know, we're, we're constantly sort of fighting to pr protect habitats and working with people. And, you know, these are sort of ongoing programs that, you know, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, and you, you might have the feeling from, from the public that, you know, well, we've been doing this for, for years. Where's the, where's the success? You know, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? But, you know, you, you do have to imagine what might have happened in such places had those conservation efforts not been going on in all those years. You know, how much worse could the situation be? How much more might we have lost in that time? And I think that it really is a valid argument. You know, the problem is, is that it becomes almost damage control because there are such stronger forces working against, you know, these these conservation efforts. And I think that's, you know, that's the the worry. And that's what makes me go to these these rallies now, you know, because these these localized wins are brilliant, but then they're, they're not enough when you consider the bigger picture. So, you know, for example, in the fight against climate change, there's the difference between individual action and top-down systemic changes. So individual action is great. You know, we can eat less meat, we can fly less. Um, it's all brilliant. You know, we're we're all going to need to make radical changes at some point. So the more we can do out of choice, the better. And also it, you know, it starts conversations. So it's it's brilliant. You know, but we're it's not working. That that alone is not working. You know, emissions are rising, climate change is upon us. You know, it's it, it's not enough. And then and in in nature conservation, it's it's similar. Um, you know, the 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 stronger forces against us might be sort of large scale habitat conversion or organised wildlife crime. In the climate fight, it's you know lobbyists and politicians and and the billionaire press and anyone who's gaining from fossil fuels. Um, you know, so. So conservation can't be effective in the long run if we don't also consider and address and adapt to climate change and, and deal with these together. Um, but for me, what's amazing and, and what makes me so happy to be uh, involved in wildlife conservation is that wildlife conservation is the solution. It's a point that's, that's so important and I don't think is, is fully recognised. And it's like I alluded to earlier, the importance of wildlife in the habitats that we now know we need to preserve in the fight against climate change. But protecting wildlife and preserving habitats is probably the most effective, cheapest, most reliable tool that we will ever have in the fight against climate change. Uh, it's you know it's absolutely crucial. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think again. I don't think people think about it that way. I, I, that, while while you were 
While you were speaking, it brought up something in my mind, which was, is it a, is it an issue of science, do you think? Is it, is it that we, I know in the United States, there's this feeling that science has been left out of the education system. It's, um, and, you know, we see it reflected in our politics and, and uh, the, the lack of understanding when it comes to a pandemic. And and viruses and and how to how to you know terminate a pandemic you know by people getting vaccinated and using you know you know good hygiene that's all based on science and I wonder if science we somehow we're missing the science and all of this in our education system so that people really understand when we start talking about this connection to wildlife because you're not the first person now in the last several weeks of recording podcasts who's brought up how important wildlife is, how important biodiversity is um, to this whole climate change conversation. And that's something that I don't think you were hearing even a couple of years ago. It it seems to be almost a radical idea that, hey, Keeping species alive, and especially significant species, does impact, as you were saying, I mean, gorillas as seed dispersers in, and forest elephants as seed dispersers in these forests and keeping the health of the forest there. Is it a science issue or is it just, or is it a communication issue or is it part both? I suspect it's both and other things. I mean, I think we need the science and, that, you know, it's, it's encouraging to hear you say that, that it is, you know, you are hearing that from more angles. I mean, I th- you know, it's 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 a no-brainer, but we need to make it mainstream. I think, and that's what we're we're missing. You know, there has there have been a lot of um, th- there's been a lot of research recently which does support that. So I mentioned earlier about you know forests that have elephants in them sequester more carbon than forests without. Um, you know, the same kind of uh, uh, calculations can be done for great apes and other species. You know, we we we've got the science behind us. Um, but probably it's about communication, isn't it? I mean, people don't people don't respond to facts. I think, right? They respond to you know things which you know which engage them. So something about their values or, or storytelling. It's you know about individuals. I, I imagine it's it's something more about the the, the communication that uh, that that. And it's not necessarily that there's something missing, but I think it's just something that needs to grow and hopefully is slowly growing. Mm. Maybe expanding communication departments <laughs> with with organizations like Born Free, um, so that we get that word out a bit more. Um, it, it's also, I think, it's a it's a challenge to get the word out in places where you're working, like in Cameroon. Yeah, and you're right. There is that whole demographic of 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 uh, urban people in these countries, I think, that are often missed out of the equation, aren't they? Like, you're right, you know, we we do work with the local communities and then we communicate our work to, you know, the UK audience. But what about people living in Yande? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's crucial as well that they, and they have absolutely more, you know, reason to to engage because it's it's a national, you know, their, their national wealth. It, it is their, yeah, na- yeah it, exactly. It is their national wealth. And, and quite often they are the hub of some of the um, the destruction going on. I mean, I recently walked through a, a wet market, bushmeat market um, in Cameroon, and I was astounded at what was there. Um, and I didn't get to see it all because I'm white, 
and people start to shelter in when you walk, <laughs> if you're a white person walking into a bushmeat market um, so that you don't get to see everything. But it, it was really astounding to see just the, the amount and the range uh, of stuff. I wanted to ask you about uh, something that you also said, which was stepping out of your comfort zone. What does that mean to you? How do we motivate people to step out of their comfort zones? Because it's really easy, I think, especially for someone like you living in the UK, me in the States, we, we have our comfort zones around us. And yeah, we may recycle and we may do a few things, but what does that mean? And, and how do we motivate people? Um yeah, well, for me, absolutely. It's it, I certainly feel like that's what I'm having to do. You know, I sort of feel like it's um, a duty, or a, possibly a, a luxury. I'm not sure which way to look at it. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with the sort of, you know, mo of of you know uh, organisations like Extinction Rebellion. Not to say that I doubt in any way that the that what they're doing is is necessary or could work. I strongly believe it. it can and it's possibly the only thing left, you know, to us that 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 can actually work. Um, but but for me, you know, it doesn't completely fit very well with with my character. It doesn't sit sort of comfortably with me. You know, I'm not somebody who puts myself in the limelight or you know opens myself up to criticism or you know stands up against the sort of common feeling. You know, and and I think it may be linked, but, you know, being a scientist, you know, we're also not trained to do that. You know, we're trained to sort of present the facts in a very objective way, you know, not to inject any personal feeling into that or to, you know, interpret our findings in any way beyond, you know, the sort of scope of our of our research. Um, so, it's difficult and that that's why it's, you know, it doesn't fall within my comfort zone. But I, I do feel as though I sort of have, um, I, I have a duty and I, and I want to to, to sort of stand up and say, look, you know, I'm in the middle of this. I, it, it matters to me. I can see that something needs to be done. And I think it is a sort of, it's a privilege, you know, not, not everyone is able to do that. If we sort of think globally, you know, in, in the UK here, we live in apparently a democracy, you know, there's free speech. I can go to a protest. I, you know, not, not everyone in every country can do that, you know? So I, I, I feel like, you know, I need to stand up and, and speak on behalf of all those people who, who can't, you know, necessarily. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do we encourage people to, to do that? I mean, one thing I've sort of found useful in recent years and is sort of linked to this is identifying what I value in life. Um, so, you know, this is something that I've sort of done um, through, in sort of, you know, recently becoming sort of moving into a leadership role within Born Free. So we've had some, you know, coaching, you know, within the organization, but I'm finding it really useful sort of, you know, personally as well is is actually to think about what do I value? And I think, you know, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, I think a lot of people are disconnected from their values. So, you know, we're bombarded these days with materialistic things, you know, people are, people value, uh, you know, celebrities or fashion or, or whatever we're sort of being bombarded with in the media. And I think these are sometimes known as junk values. But, you know, if we really drill down and think about well, what what do we actually value, it's probably things like loyalty and family and safety, you know, and, you know, it, it's probably these really fundamental human values. And, and all of those, you know, sort of matter and and all of them are are at risk and i think that's one way that we can engage with people is if you know if people if we can sort of speak to their values so you know if we can sort of encourage people to to you know 
reconnect to the, to their values. And I think, you know, I think that's a really useful thing to do anyway, because it, it guides you in life, you know, it, it guides your behavior and it, it, you know, it makes you more at ease with the decisions you make. And, you know, I think it's a great thing to do, but I think that's definitely one way that we can sort of engage with people is to, is to put the context of everything that's going on in, in, in terms of people's values and what's at, what's at risk. Um, you know, maybe that's one way to, to look at it. I, I agree with you. I, I think those are uh, fairly fundamental, but I think they're fundamental across the board. I think if you actually sat down in a village on the edge of the jaw and talked to mothers and fathers and, you know, people there, they would have those same values. And I think we forget that sometimes in thinking they live in this exotic place and all we hear about is, yeah, they killed a gorilla for bushmeat or they cutting down a tree for a logging job. And, and at the core, they have those same values. And maybe that's where we, uh, we, we need to think about how to connect more effectively. Um, speaking of the jaw, I would, I'd love to sort of end this by asking you, looking ahead five, 10 years um, of work in that region, what, what would you say is success? What, how would you describe I don't, I don't want to use the word victory. That sounds like we beat somebody else. I don't think that's, <laughs> I think it's more a cooperative thing. But what, what would you describe as a collective success? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we, you know, we set out on, you know, these kind of conservation programs with very clear, you know, intended outcomes that we want to achieve after a certain number of years. Um, you know, we could say that if we don't achieve all of those, it's not a success. Um, it's, it's a really tough landscape. It's incredibly complex. You know, there are multiple pressures and, and drivers and factors, you know, and, and a, a charity can't, can't tackle everything, you know, and it's like I've said, we'll do what we can in the current situation and, and you know, and, and hope for the, the, the gains and the wins that we can have um, within that. I mean, I think one thing that would be, that would, would be a true win would be, it would be sort of obtaining community stewardship. So really, you know, empowering the communities because most of the work that we're doing, I mean, most of modern conservation, to be honest, is working with people. You know, I think that's quite different to, to you know, perhaps how conservation used to be, but it really is. It's all about, you know, uh, providing skills training, building capacity, um, you know, uh, providing equipment if if necessary education you know community outreach it's it's all about empowering communities and and this program is our program in the jar is very much the same we're, we're going to be providing um we're going to be giving skills training around uh sustainable agroforestry so it's basically sustainable cocoa farming which is a, a practice that that the communities do anyway and they you know they they want this support um to to you know, make sure that they can have a sustainable but reliable income from that into the long run. And we're going to help with sort of, you know, market and trade routes and everything. And then, you know, alongside that, there's the, we're uh, investing in environmental primary education and community outreach. We'll also be supporting uh, law enforcement and we'll also be looking at uh, reforesting abandoned farmlands because uh, another sort of local practice is slash and burn farming. And then plots of forest eventually get abandoned and, and a new piece of um, forest will be cut down to to build the next farmland there there are ways around that there are ways to to make these you know older uh, plots of land more fertile there are different you know farming methods that can avoid the need to slash and burn so you know we we we're, we're doing all of that that work uh with the communities um 
so I think one thing that would be that, that to me would be a win is if we can really, you know, empower those communities to be in a situation where it, it's working for them and they are coexisting and and the, the you know the pressures on the on the natural resources and you know the surrounding forests and the wildlife are are sustainable you know that we've sort of helped them you know achieve what the communities have been doing for millennia you know which is sort of live in harmony in 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 this rainforest habitat and i, I think that would be amazing you know if we could feel feel as though we could step out even if it's a you know a very localized win if we could step away and know that those forests were in were in safe hands and the communities would you know uh, be stewards of them. I think that would be absolutely amazing. So conservation really is about development, you know, as much as it is about addressing climate change. It's strangely not so much about the animals themselves these days <laughs> in terms of the actions, <laughs> not in terms of the goals. <laughs> I want to thank Nikki Tag for sharing her insights into Born Free Foundation's conservation work and efforts to protect the critically important Jaw Biosphere Reserve. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our new website at www.talkingapes.org. That's talkingapes, one word, dot O-R-G, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us via the website. I'd like to thank Talking Apes assistant producer Demelza Bond for all of her work pulling together another great podcast. And finally, thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation on the website at TalkingApes.org. I would especially like to thank all of those who work tirelessly every day to rescue and protect wild great apes. We hope through Talking Apes, we can add a stronger voice to everything they do. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.